Welcome to Startups with Niall Marr. This is a show that covers a wide variety of business and startup topics, but ultimately the goal is to give you tips, strategies and advice to grow your business and hopefully entertain you along the way. You won't just be learning from me, I'll also be chatting with founders and other interesting people from the startup world and sharing their conversations with you too. Thanks for listening and let's grow together. Are you curious about getting investors for your business? I know I am. I just started talking to investors in the last week about MyQ. And fundraising is supposed to be hard. And if it was easier, the market would be even riskier than it already is. But with the right playbook, there is a recipe for success. If you are curious or just looking for some tips on that journey, today's goal is to help you avoid some common pitfalls when you are fundraising. One of the best ways to learn is from the mistakes of others. Another option, and even luckier for me, is to chat with James Church, who works with founders on all of their assets, and I am quoting James here, that makes it 40 times more likely to get an investment. James is an absolute fountain of knowledge in this episode, so buckle up and listen to his journey with his own business and the advice to anyone fundraising. James, thanks a million for joining us. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled, thrilled to be here. So yeah, I'm James Church. I'm the author of the best-selling book, Investable Entrepreneur. And I'm also the co-founder and the COO at Robot Mascot. Now, Robot Mascot, we're, we're essentially an agency that create investment materials that convince investors. Uh, and when we do that, our clients are 40 times more likely to raise the investment that they need. And as a result of that, we've been recognised as the UK's leading pitch agency. We're trusted by the likes of Crowdcube, Cedars, Dent Global Accelerators, Seed Legals and a number of other um, capital raising partners. Won a few awards along the way as well, which is really cool. And um, yeah, essentially, at the heart of, of what we want to see at, at Robot Mascot is, is we want to see great ideas and innovations flourish. And we just get so frustrated at seeing those great ideas fail because of poor communication. So that's really what we stand for. That's what we want to change with the world. Uh, and we want to see these great ideas just absolutely um, raise the investment they need, go on to bigger and better things because they can communicate their, their idea in the right ways. Is there a specific type of profile you find people going towards you? Is there is it builders like me or nerds like myself who struggle with communication that go towards you? Or are you finding all parts of business are finding useful to jump over and work with yourselves? Because we, we work in creating you know, business plans and financial strategy, as well as pitch and, and can kind of communication assets. There's two types of founders that, that we, we see day to day, typically. And it's the there's the techies, the builders, the, the scientists, the engineers who, who kind of would much rather talk technical information, and they need that help turning into something everyone can can understand and everyone can can grasp. And then you have the kind of more marketing-led founders, and the ones that are great at the sales, great at getting people to buy into a vision and they've got no trouble telling the story, but they don't necessarily have all the, the detailed information that an investor would be looking for. And we find that, that essentially there's three things that, that an investor's looking for. And that is, you know, a founder that can get people to buy into a vision, is highly resourceful, can bring people on board to their vision, great talent, great advisors, 
game-changing commercial partnerships and of course capital but then they're also looking for someone who's got a real understanding of commercial success and how to create commercial success and, and implementation strategies around business and financial risks and rewards and how the numbers play out so you've got to have that balance between the two and it's pretty common for one a founder to be good at one thing and not the other it's very rare to find a founder who's genuinely really good at the detail and the numbers and the strategy and also at telling great stories and get people getting people to buy into a vision so yeah it's a real it's a it's a real mix and depending on who you are as a founder you probably resonate with one of those more than the other it's amazing because you literally are filling in the gaps because i obviously came from it with the angle of i build stuff so you'll help me do the business stuff but i forget that there is the opposite side and they there's a whole other blank that has to be filled in for whoever it yeah. is that comes to you and i think the reason I have you more than anything here today is you're passionate about helping people get funding, but helping people and helping startups. And I was very uh, interested to hear how you started this journey, because I know, I don't know if it was the same name when it started, but you started Robot Mascot off as a branding agency, yeah. so I believe. And yes. when did that yeah. change into this? Or could you tell us the story of yeah, how that okay, all happened? Cool. So, yeah. So, so Robot Mascot was a originally founded by my business partner, Nicholas Rustin. He's a creative director, has worked in top 10 advertising agencies in the UK, working on incredible brand campaigns for the likes of Jaguar, for the likes of Barclays. He launched IWantOneOfThose.com back in the day. He did their launch marketing, their launch campaign. Re really experienced creative director. And I joined him about, I think it was 12, 18 months into the journey as his co-founder and, and more on the operational side. Um, and I came more from a marketing and communication background. And he came from sort of an advertising communication background. And we built this branding agency that's what we wanted that's what we wanted to do so we we built this agency and we were working we always had the, the same vision great ideas and innovations to flourish we wanted to be on the cusp of the new and we were always really intrigued by startups and creating startup brands that were exciting and innovative and there was these sort of future thinkers these exciting young dynamic founders so Naturally, we started being asked by these startups that were that we were building their brand for to start creating their pitch deck. We need our, you know, we've got our deck. We need it to, we need it to look in line with our brand, and we want it to look um, really slick when it goes to an investor. And so we started doing some of that work, and um, we had some advisors who were also angel investors, and they saw some of that work, and they said, you know what, you've got something really special here there's not anyone who does that and not anyone who does it to the standard that you've done it for these clients you should look into this being a service because there's a massive problem here so that that got us looking into that my, my co-founder nick went in and watched some pitch events in in sort of various tech hubs in around the country mainly in london and witnessed that firsthand came back reported to me and, and then i spent the next sort of 12 to 18 months researching with founders and investors and realized that there was a real issue to solve there and and so we started from the basis of we're going to help you with your pitch with the communication the, the language and the and the design of that pitch we naively thought that uh, a founder would as part of the brief they would give us their business plan and their financial projections and we'd have everything we need to go and create a nice articulate 20 pay 20 slide pitch deck make it look pretty make it sound great we were so wrong so many founders you know 80 90 percent of the founders we were working with kind of didn't have those assets or we could see that they weren't there to a good enough standard and and what really happened was that we were seeing loads of founders that we were working with 
getting great response from their pitch, getting investor meetings as a result of this great pitch, but none of them were closing the deal. None of them were actually getting the investment, or some of them were, but not all of them, not enough of them for my liking. So we looked into what that reason was, and it was because they didn't have, that pitch wasn't built upon those fundamental assets of a business plan and a financial projections that was solid enough to tick investors' boxes in those second and third meetings and that due diligence phase. So that's what kind of led to us sort of becoming a very specialist communications agency focusing only on investor communications and and approaching the creation of a business plan, financial plan and a, a you know financial forecast and a pitch through the lens of them being marketing materials to close an investment deal. They they're essentially marketing materials to sell shares in your business as opposed to marketing materials to sell a product. Um, and because we view it through that lens, we've been able to have great success by creating all of those assets in, in one place and have everything for the whole journey. So yeah, it's been quite a transformation, but it was just seeing a real need that we knew we could solve and just nailing it and focusing in on it. That's uh, amazing because most good product companies will go through the same where they originally set out to solve one problem and then all of a sudden you listen to what your customers are asking for and you realize that they're using it in a way you didn't expect. And you can either ignore it and die or you listen and adapt. And I yeah. think that's the, one of the best examples of adapting I've heard, really. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it really did turn out to be the sort of classic kind of example of a pivot, you know, where it wasn't a complete overnight change of direction. We kind of, you know, if you think about the, if you physically pivot, one foot stands still and then the other foot moves. You, and, and businesses, when they pivot, they think it's just an instant change of direction, like switching tracks. But actually, a pivot has one one point that stays still and then another point moves around it. And, and that's kind of what we did. We still ran that branding agency as a branding agency for a, for a number of years while we were embedding ourselves into startup culture, while we were doing the research for the new product. And we, we actually launched a, a, an MVP site for these pitch services that we called robotmascot.tech. And we had our .tech kind of brand that had a different look and feel. Um, and while we tested, you know, was there, was, you know, would, would people pay us to solve this problem? And once we realized they, they would, and that, that, that was the, the opportunity for us to scale, we then rebranded the agency and relaunched as this, as this pitch agency. So yeah, it, it was looking back, it was, it was pretty textbook. It didn't feel like that at the time, but um, looking back it, it, it um, with, with success, it's quite easy to turn around and say that was, that was a pretty good textbook move. So yeah, pretty pleased with how it turned out. I would be too. It's it's brilliant. I see you've uh, you've catalyzed in many ways as well. You have the the best selling book now, Investable Entrepreneur, yeah. which I'm yeah. going through in the audio form. Yeah. Uh, I, lucky enough, the content is is very interesting and relevant because it's a very soothing voice. <laughs> oh no, I don't anyway. want people falling asleep. No, it's it's definitely not because the content is so good and detailed. There's no waste. It's valuable content. There's a lot of nonfiction you pick up, and you can read the first chapter and the last chapter, and you get it. There, there's not really like a step-by-step yeah. -step process that you should follow. There's not a journey to follow. It's like, hey, mm. we believe this. Now here's 40 examples of why this is true. <laughs> In your, <laughs> yeah. your book, it brings you on a journey. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, that's what I intended to do. And, and obviously I come from a, a communication background. So this was an extended 
different way of writing for me. I've never written something as meaty as a book before, but for me, it's the same as writing any piece of communication, whether it's a pitch or a brochure or a or, or some kind of campaign. It's about telling that story and take pe- taking people on a journey of discovery. That's kind of what I wanted from that book. So it's, it's good that that comes through. I just read another book recently called Write Useful Books, and it just nice. it it felt textbook of a useful book. There's no fluff. The content is all super useful. I, I've seen you giving away the book for free. It's a cheap price on Amazon. This content is everywhere for anyone that needs it. So if anyone is looking for tips on their uh, decks and everything else and their journey for investment, I, I really recommend it. But do, has that impacted your business negatively or positively? Because I think a lot of people get worried that if I give away the secret sauce, my business will crumble beneath me because they'll no longer yeah. need me. Yeah, yeah, that is always a worry. And, and I was equally nervous at the idea. The, the, the good thing for me is that, that we have an advisor and business partner who's built three or four multi-million dollar businesses all off of the back of launching a book. We had, the, we had the reassurance that it does work from someone we really trusted. There's a power in doing it though, because it's it allows you to, one, help so many people. Um, you know, I wanna, I wanna help, you know, the, 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 the goal and, and the purpose of writing the book was to, was a personal one to, to support, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of founders raise investment. And I can't, couldn't possibly do that through a consultancy I couldn't help every single founder I wanted to help through running a consultancy Um, so I needed another way to achieve that ambition and that was through writing a book that gave across that information producing loads of content online and and videos and, and and social content that supports it allows me to achieve that ambition that personal ambition um but the writing of a book allowed me to get really clear on on our methods and our approaches so it allowed me to actually sell the business better as well because I suddenly had a much more structured and a better story and a better way of describing the value that we add in the business so so yeah it's had a knock-on effect of of improving the business we saw a 300% growth in revenue the, the 12 months after I launched the book which is just insane so it really was the catalyst for for growth and scale because that people will of course read the book and go thank you very much and i've had loads of messages on linkedin from people saying i've read your book and I've, it was so influential and we've just closed a 500k funding round or whatever and part of you is like god oh, damn they could have been a client but the other part is like really <laughs> you know really proud that that you've been able to support them in that way and the truth of the matter is if they were able to implement what was in the book and raise the funds then they probably didn't need to pay for my help through our consultancy anyway and it would have been it probably wouldn't have been the right fit and we probably would have had a discussion and said you know what you actually don't need our help you just need to do this and this and then you're um, and then you're good to go so so what actually happens is you end up helping and supporting a load of people that would have probably have never worked with you anyway and then what you end up doing is working with the people who really see the value and really, really want to bring you on board because they just couldn't or don't want to do it themselves. And they, they want to bring someone else in to do it. And that's just the way that they operate. So it's allowed us to filter out the types of clients we work with and only speak to the people who really see how we can add value and want to pay for our support. So, yeah, it's been a win win all round, really. It's it, it's such a positive thing because you hear so many companies that are so hell-bent on selling that they forget who they're trying to help or how they help people or who the right mm-hmm. person is. So it's kind of refreshing to hear somebody that cares saying, oh, well, we want 
the relationship to be better rather than just make yeah. a quick book. So it's 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 really nice to hear that. That's key. And and when we were building the robot mascot brand and we were looking at kind of what 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 we stand for and what we really care about, myself and Nick, um, we really saw ourselves as the guide in this scenario, not the hero of the story. It's not about us, it's about our clients and we're the guide that, that guides the client through. Our, our ethos is robot mascot is to be the friends and allies of founders and that's really sets up when when your ethos is to be the friend and allies of founders you 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 kind of can't charge for anything really the fact that we make a living is probably anti that ethos but that's why we give away so much so much free content the f give away the book for free more than happy to do so you don't even have to pay for postage and packaging you know it's like we'll cover that don't worry about it give away the blog content the video content put all of that stuff out there and that time and effort into it because our our genuine kind of personal ethos between me and my co-founder is to be the friend and ally of founders and to support as many people as possible on this journey and not all of them are uh, people who want to pay for consultancy um and so why not help them in other forms in other ways even doing this and taking some time out of your busy day to come over and just talk and help people on my podcast has been amazing as well yeah uh, it just proves that the that is how you do things. You just want to help as many people as you can. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really appreciate it because I said to you before the call that I've been stealing from you for about a year now because I sat in on one of your sessions and I really like how you spoke and how you talked about things. Then I just started looking for all the content, looking through your book, and it's been very useful for me anyway as I start my fundraising journey especially uh, to know what I need, what I should be thinking about especially as a, a builder who just would rather not worry about the paper things <laughs> yeah. and the assets. So having those things in place is very important and having that nice checklist. So I appreciate it. I hope you keep it up for people mm -hmm. like me who will steal oh, from absolutely. you. absolutely. <laughs> so, but I also hope there's plenty of people who are listening to this that think, do you know what? I would rather get some help and get a push <laughs> and get an expert yeah. in this to help me so then I'll feel less guilty about stealing from you all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, everyone is, it isn't stealing if I'm putting it out there for free already, is it? It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's certainly not, certainly not stealing. It's, it's using, using what we, we want, exactly what we want to happen is, is for you to look through that stuff, be inspired and use it to help yourself get where you want to be. That's, that's what it's there for. I'm keeping one foot on the ground because I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about your pivot statement. That's a, a really nice <laughs> analogy for this. So pivoting to helping the selfish me <laughs> jumping in this. Because I've just started fundraising, I wanted to ask you a few questions about the fundraising journey. And I think it'll be useful yeah, for other people who are in similar position as myself. I am pre-product. I'm building the product. I'm hoping to have uh, something to sell in the next couple of months. But I'm also out seeking investment so that we can accelerate through that launch, basically. Is there a stage you find too early for looking for investment or have you found some businesses are just premature or what are the natural stages people usually look for investment? Yeah, no, no time is too early, depending on how much you're asking to raise. And I think that's the big mistake that founders make is raising too much too soon. So rather than taking baby steps, you know, maybe raising 50 grand from a friends and family or, or an angel you know, an individual angel that you might know in your local business community, for example, to go and 
build the MVP and, and get your first few users or, or not even an MVP, maybe just a proof of concept and, and get your first few users or start to, to do some product market fit testing before you then go and raise, you know, 150, 200K SCIS kind of round to, to build that full MVP and get your first few users and then 500K to, to get to a market ready position and, and so on and so forth. So I think there's a, a tendency for founders to kind of go straight for the 200K or straight for the, to the 500, 750K, in some cases, the million, two million, because they think it's a great idea. No one's going to invest in an idea. Ideas are uh, 10 a penny. We can all have ideas. What an investor is really looking for is is the founder who can execute it, the founder who can make it happen. And you need to have shown evidence that you're you're making progress in turning this idea into reality and, and impress them with how much you've been able to ch- achieve with so little capital invested so far, because then I know if I give you my capital, you're going to make it go really far. You're going to, you're going to, have a have great success with the way that you spend that investment so it's less about if it's too early and it's about having the right amount of asking for the right amount of money for the right stage of your development so it's something i call the fundraising journey and i talk about it in my book and there's this sort of fundraising journey and and it's sort of navigating that from kind of bootstrapping to pre-seed seed series a and and so on and as long as you get that right you you should be fine one of my notes in front of me because it's something that stood out for me when I was reading is that the four stages of the fundraising journey bootstrapping startup scale up and exit it's a it's an interesting process to me you also mentioned in the book that there is some people that quickly accelerate through it and do you find it's those people who take those baby steps or those people that throw the big swings that are usually uh, going through these spaces and this might be counter to your last point it might not I'm just curious no no ba- baby steps tends to work out quicker and also tends to mean that as a founder you retain more of your equity because you can raise a small amount on a small valuation revalue raise more revalue raise more and and whereas if you if you go straight for the jugular and you try and raise one two million straight away I, can you justify you know, at, at best, you'd have to justify like a, a four million valuation for this idea to, to part with 50 percent equity of the business, whereas that's probably not very realistic. And, and most investors probably aren't going to go for that deal. And you're going to quickly be in a position where you've not got enough equity for you to feel like it's worthwhile. So it's better for you. It's better for the investors. It's better for your journey, because if you're trying to raise large sums of money with little evidence and, and little kind of progress to date, then you're going to spend six, 12 months trying to close your round. Whereas you could go and raise 50K for three months in that very early state, earliest stage just to get your idea off the ground and make that make that impact straight away and then go and raise another 150K to last you six months and then make, you know, prove what you can do with that and then go and raise another five. And, and those rounds could, would take less time to close because they're more realistic deals. There's something an investor goes, this is a no-brainer because it's you, you've proven so much with the money you've spent so far and, and I can see the traction, I can see the evidence, I can see the proof that this is this is something the market wants and needs. You know, it's much easier for me to make the decision on saying, yes, I'm going to gonna invest. So yeah, small, little and often tends to be, as a general rule of thumb, the, the best approach for, for so many different reasons. Beautiful. So it's just creating that confidence as you move through the... Investors are looking for proof, 
not possibilities. And as founders, we love to talk about the possibilities. We love to talk about all the future applications, all the things it could be, because we're dreamers, we're visionaries, we're, we're trying to create the next big thing. Investors tend to come from a financial background and they're, they're looking to invest. They're either spending their money or someone else's money and they're looking for as much certainty as you can get in the startup world, which is not much certainty at all, but they're trying to, to get as much certainty as they possibly can on their investment decision. So the more proof, the more evidence you have, the more likely you are to close the deal. So if you can do that with a small amount of, of initial kind of bootstrapped um, cash, and then a small friends and family, and then a slightly larger pre-seed and so on, uh, and take those steps, you're going you're gonna to be able to have much more meaningful conversations with investors in the, in the long run. Love it. Are you enjoying the podcast? Just so you know, most people will find this show through sharing. If you have a friend that you think would like this show too, open the app, tap that share button and send them a real quick text. This will really help the podcast out to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. I have a couple of titles I've stolen shamelessly from your book as well, because I thought they were great talking topics as well. The Mind of an Investor and what do investors want to see? So I'd love your thoughts on what makes a pitch great. Yeah, okay. So essentially there's, yeah, there's a few, few different things that investors are looking to see, namely risk, assets, proof, and implementation. They're the main things that investors tend to, tend to want to understand. On the other hand, founders prefer to talk about opportunities, possibilities, revenue, ideas. They're the sorts of things that founders like to talk about. Um, so that's the challenge. That's the thing the book looks to solve. The, the thing that we look to solve at, at Robot Mascot is how you translate your natural way of talking as a founder about possibilities, opportunities, ideas into these four categories of risk, assets, proof and implementation. So we, we already kind of covered proof. We were talked about that just just recently. But then you've got you've got risk. So they, they want to understand the financial risks and rewards in the business and also the operational risks in the business and how you're going to be able to mitigate those. Now, they don't necessarily come in the pitch, but they certainly come into the conversations you have after after the pitch in the second and third meetings in the due diligence and certainly your financials should demonstrate that you're considering the financial risk so a, a, a simple example of that would be looking at your cash buffer you know you're raising let's say a million pounds for a 12-month runway what and then you're raising another five million pounds for the next 12 months let's say for, for argument's sake what what happens if that second round is delayed by three months do, do you run out of cash and start having to lay off team and and stop marketing just as you're about to go and raise a second round of investment you have to stop your marketing and your growth is is, is starting to slow or go downwards instead of upwards or, or are you a sensible founder that's built in a three-month cash buffer into the amount you're raising? So if things can be delayed, things are delayed, you don't have to lay off that team you've just spent 12 months building. You can continue your marketing efforts for three months before you really have to start winding things down and start getting desperate. So that would be a way of, of using your funding assets to demonstrate to an investor that you also understand risk. And then you might have risk analysis in your business plan that talks through operational risks as well as financial risks and, and such like. So that they really want a founder that understands that and, and has thought in part how they're going to mitigate those sort of main risks in the business. And they want to see assets, not just revenue. Founders love to 
talk about revenue, but they really want to understand the kind of underlying assets in the business, things like, you know, valuable things like IP and how you're going to protect that. So you might, you might talk about that in your pitch, your core IP, how you've protected it, the unfair advantage you might have, your marketing strategy, your, your marketing system that you might have built for turning lead to sale. That could be a unique kind of process, unique flow that you've created the you know, a unique sequence of events that delivers results every time. That's a really strong asset that performs part of the, the value of the company. So really they're looking at all those underlying assets in the business that become part of the valuation. So there's soft assets like IP and systems and processes and your brand, things that don't appear on a balance sheet and, and are kind of soft assets and are something that are, that are quantified when you come to sell the company. And then you've got your physical assets that might be something like physical equipment or machinery or something like that, which very few tech companies actually have. It's all soft assets. So they want to understand that you, you understand yourself as a founder, that you're not just trying to build revenue, you're trying to build these assets. You know, customer numbers are a great a great asset. The customers you have are an incredible asset. And, you know, WhatsApp famously exited their their business having made no revenue. We sold for a billion dollars to Facebook having made no revenue. Microsoft and Facebook in a bidding war against each other just because they had millions and millions of users. Made no money as a business. It was completely loss-making, but they had millions of users all over the world and they were worth a billion dollars because of it. They had a really valuable asset and that was users, customers. So investors want you to understand that and that comes through your pitch and these other assets as well. Proof, like I said, we talked about and then implementation. Like I said, everyone can have an idea. Ideas aren't valuable. If you look at the top founders in the world, the ones that are creating the billion dollar unicorn businesses, what they're all great at is implementation. I could have a new idea tomorrow. Let's say I'm walking home from work, I get off the bus or off the train and there's this derelict building that I walk past. And every day for about 12 months, I walk past that building. I think someone should really turn that into a block of luxury apartments. It's right near the station, within commuting distance of London. If someone made this a set of luxury apartments, that would, they would make an absolute killing here. I can't be angry if I then walk past 12 months later and someone's breaking ground on, a, on this site and they're turning it into a luxury block of apartments. I can't be angry. Oh, you stole my idea. How dare you? Um, I didn't implement it. I could have gone and raised the finance. I could have taken the risk. I could have gone and uh, created the strategy and worked with the architect and drawn up the plans. I could have done all that stuff, but I didn't. I had the idea. Am I the person who should get the rewards for that? No, of course not. You wouldn't argue that it's the person who's worked with the architect, drawn up the the plans, raised the finance, gone out and found the buyers for these luxury apartments to sell them to that deserves all the plaudits and deserves all the results. So the same is true when you're talking to investors. You, you can't rely on the fact you've got a great idea. You need to be able to deliver them a solid implementation strategy that gets you from breaking ground through to having a luxury set of apartments that you can sell, which in your case in a software business is I have what's my roadmap for building a business, gaining customers, building a product that's in its infancy now to something of value in five years time. So that's the way the mind of the investor works versus the typical founder that's like, my idea's great, give me loads of money because it's a cracking, cracking idea. I love the thought about ideas being cheap because we all have a friend at one point that said, they stole my idea. And it's, <laughs> you know, if you're in the pub with somebody, you'll always have one. They're like, I invented yeah. the Jaffa cake and they stole it from me. <laughs> so yeah, it's absolutely. just so funny. 
when you he hear stories like that, even in the business context. But I guess execution yeah. is king when it comes yeah. to anything, really. Yeah, absolutely. And and on a on a slightly more ser serious note, and, and this isn't legal advice, but that this is why I get so frustrated. And I kind of roll my eyes every time someone says, "Oh, will you sign an NDA before I will talk with you?" about my idea and I kind of think well first and foremost if I was in the business of stealing ideas and then doing them myself I wouldn't have much of a consultancy left given what given what I do but secondly if you are not if you're putting blockers up with every single conversation you investors aren't going to bother signing it you're never going to have the discussion with them people who potentially could introduce you to a great referral partner are never going to introduce you to that big game-changing commercial partner because you never had the conversation because you put up that roadblock because you weren't willing to share your idea for fear of it being stolen and if you were to share that idea you should be at least 12 months ahead you've got years of experience and insights that probably led to you having that idea in the first place you should feel like you're the best person to make this happen so even if someone did have you know look at your idea and think that's great i want to do it myself you should be 12 months ahead of them you should be the person to make this happen because you could you're the only person who could actually implement this with any success so you shouldn't have a fear of your idea being stolen as a founder if you genuinely think you're the person to make this happen and can access the capital to make it happen quickly. There, there's no reason to, to fear your idea being stolen. And and the more you share your idea, actually, the, the quicker things move, the, the more introductions you get, the more people help you, the more you'll get advisors supporting you. Yeah, it's a weird thing that founders do trying to protect their idea and not kind of tell anyone about it for fear of it being stolen. I do find it odd. I love that because I mentor some local businesses through a government program called New Frontiers and it's it's bizarre when like that's probably the most common thing when people are reaching out for help and they always ask do I need to get NDAs drawn up to make sure that my idea is protected before somebody steals it and I, like that's my answer you're working on this you should already be there if somebody starts mm. this and can get ahead of you you're in a you yeah. don't have a great product if it's that shaky no. that by just sharing the details <laughs> that it's gone <laughs> yeah because less less you know anything that you could share in a one hour meeting with someone is is about the level of detail you would put in a sales brochure or on a website to to sell the product in the first place so if your whole idea and your whole ecosystem and your whole product can be replicated off the back of a sales brochure then you probably haven't got much of value in the first place um not to mention the fact that how many founders do you know have the, the capital behind them to enforce an NDA in the courts with a, expensive lawyers? If you could afford to do that, you don't need to raise capital in the first place. So it's a complete, it's a complete nonsense. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it because it's a gripe of mine. And that's, <laughs> so I'm so glad. We could, I'm, I'm going to change topic in a second because I, I absolutely think I could give out about this all day because it's just such a, <laughs> it just annoys me. It frustrates me because I used to do product development for uh, people. I used to build their products. So that was always the thing is, oh, you need an NDA because you, you can obviously build this idea. So you're going to steal it. I was like, I, I make money by building stuff. I need, please just come and let me do my business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to yeah, give you money in the end. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a nonsense and yeah, a frustration of mine. But you're probably right. We should probably draw a line in that before we get ourselves into trouble. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I, I, I'm used to it, so I'll keep you out of trouble. I, I'll I'll stick my foot in it anyway. <laughs> moving moving clear way off. And uh, do the types of investors matter, or is this something that comes in with the staging, like you mentioned earlier? 
is there a certain time you should be looking for strategic investors or is any money good money do you find when people are raising yeah it, it depends on the founder you're talking to i think some just want any capital at any cost i think most will want a strategic fit with an investor in the in the early years i think smart money as it's become known as bringing on board sort of an angel investor and advisor is always quite in my opinion quite a good strategy in the early years have quite an active investor that comes with a little black book of people they can introduce you to and and years of experience building businesses who have some playbooks that they could share with you that will get you off the ground quicker i think that's invaluable and and that in itself is is worth you have to consider when doing the deal that the 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 cash alone it isn't just the value that they bring to the table and and that is reflected in the equity deal that you propose to them. So I think, for in my personal opinion, I think the right investors at an early stage are those types of consultant advisor investors. That, that And I think that really helps when it comes to the later stages when you're raising maybe your seed in Series A and you're approaching some funds or, or angel groups and, and you've got a team of great advisors who are also invested in this business, not just through their time, but through capital it kind of tells a much, much more solid story. Because if, if you pitch and say, I've got these great advisors on board, and then the, the fund turn around and say, so are they your angel investors? And they go, oh no, they haven't put any cash in. So, well, if they think this is such a great idea, why haven't they? So having that kind of advisor investor to begin with, I think avoiding funds in the early stages is probably a wise move in most parts. Even the so-called SCIS funds they tend to, you're probably wasting your time because they're so oversubscribed with applications that the reality is that even though SEIS as a scheme is there to to support founders raising, to build their product and to, in the very earliest stages of their development, the reality is that there's enough businesses out there that are quite established looking to raise 150k. A fund and the way a fund operates just can't help itself going with the better strategic bet even though technically they don't really need SEIS money and and they're slightly ahead of the curve versus the majority of pre-seed businesses so funds are normally quite difficult to get cash out of until you're quite well established with revenues again pitching to VCs you're going to really struggle pitching to VCs until you've got yourself to the point of having 80 you know, the typical typical VC of having sort of 80K monthly recurring revenue, you're on course to having a million ARR. Then VCs kind of open their doors and, and they're really interested. Prior to that, it's a real slog and you're probably better off talking to angel investors um, and angel groups. So yeah, it's about targeting the right, the right investors. And it also changes your pitch. If you're pitching to VCs, you should already have about a million in revenue and you should be focusing on your whole strategy is how quickly can we get to 100 million in revenue? That, that should really be the conversation you're having. Whereas with angels, it's a very different conversation. It's, we're pre-revenue, we're pre-product in some cases. And, and our, the plan is over the next three to five years to get to five, 10, 50 million in revenue, not... So, so it's a completely different kind of structure of your implementation strategy for the different investors you're talking to. So yeah, really important to pick and have conversations with the right ones and create an investor target list of who's most likely to invest versus who's least likely to invest and have the right conversations with the right investors. I love that advice because it's so applicable to me right now. I <laughs> have that, that is the one question I have since I started last week of going out and 
starting to fundraise myself is am I talking to the right people? So that is absolutely golden in the sense of it, it makes sense once it's said out loud. It's just a case of when you're in when you're too close to the details, you miss the details or the the big picture, I guess. Yeah, so that's phenomenal advice. The best thing to do is to do your research and. You know, you can get a pro account for Crunchbase for about $20 a month and, and you can look at similar round sizes that have closed recently and you can look at the companies and you can look at who the, the investors are that were registered in that round and, and then you can search them on LinkedIn and, and start to make connections with them and say, I realise that you just invested in the pre-seed round of this company. We're in a similar niche doing something very different. I think you'll love what we're doing. Shall we chat? And you know that they invest in your type of business at your stage of the journey because you've researched it, you've found the details on Crunchbase or you've you've scoured LinkedIn for investors within your locality and or, or within your niche and you've looked at who they have listed on their LinkedIn profile as, as people they've actively invested in. You're like, they're perfect for me. And it's, it is, it's boring work. It's not the most exciting thing to do as a founder, slogging through the internet, researching a, a list of targets, but it's going to, it's going to mean you don't waste any time just doing a sort of a spray and pray approach rather than targeted laser focused kind of outreach campaign. It's more of a direct outreach campaign fundraising than it is a mass advertising campaign. So yeah, the more you can spend doing that, the, the, the better your results will be, I think. I love that. This feels like a personal mentoring session to me. So I, I really uh, appreciate it. <laughs> awesome. Before I throw you off the call then, the, the one thing I wanted to ask mm -hmm. was, in the book, you, you write a book, there's only so much you can put in it. It's printed, it's done. Is there anything or any piece of advice that you wish you could have put into the book that didn't make it? Or is there any mistakes you're noticing since or anything you'd like to change? Or, yeah. No, I, I'm basically looking for a nugget of gold that isn't in the book. Uh, I mean, there's loads. So there, there's loads of stuff that I think there could be a book before and there could be a book after the book that I've written that there, there, there could, I could go into a lot more detail around product market fit. That's a part of a chapter. And I think that's super important. And so many, the whole evidence piece, the proof piece that investors are looking for could almost be a book in itself. And even the conversation around, do you even need to raise equity investment in the first place? Or is there a better route for you? There, there's all of that kind of information that, that, I didn't have enough space to cover and, and it would have changed the focus of the book. And I think that's best left as like a, a prequel, if you like, that's the, the really early stage, get it off the ground book and get it to a point where you're raising, you're in a place to raise a pre-seed or a seed round. And then there's the, then there's the sequel and that's probably my next goal. And it's kind of, I haven't committed myself to it and I haven't committed time to it because I'm kind of enjoying where my life's at right now without slogging away another book but there's certainly something in the future that I think is expanding upon the the final part of the book where I start for a chapter or two start alluding to campaign strategy and kind of what to do with these assets once you've got your pitch once you have your projections once you've got your business plan how do you actually meet seek and convert investors how do you find them how do you reach out to them how do you have conversations with them and how do you close the deal and I think there's a whole book around campaign strategy that I'd like to write in the future that, that focuses on that. So yeah, they're the kinds of things that, that couldn't fit into this book and are probably gonna be books for the future for me. I think closing is definitely a golden thing because I think a lot yeah. of people in sales can warm up people and then just not close. So uh, even yeah. just that last piece could so be the, a book, I'm sure. Yeah, in itself. It's <laughs> the, 
So I, I mentioned it briefly in, in the book, the expression of interest form is the absolute killer there. You know, this simple piece of paper or an online form like a, a Google form or whatever that just asks an investor to say who they are, what's their intended investment range. Are they a passive or active investor? Are they looking for SCIS, SEIS shares? You might even ask them what else could they bring to the table more than money. Just some simple questions where you're qualifying the investors. Um, you're almost interviewing them as to their suitability for your round and it completely changes the the dynamic because a lot of investors are essentially relationship builders and they know that most founders struggle to close a round and they might really like what you're um, doing but there's no real urgency they you might have it might take you six months to close they might not have the the cash to invest right now and they just want to see how you go and maybe they'll invest in you in the future and you get a lot of verbal commitments that never turn into anything and with an expression of interest form, you can kind of weed out the tire kickers So, because you can say, thanks for the verbal commitment, would you mind just filling in this form just to express your interest? It's not legally binding, it's not the heads of terms, it's just so I can better manage the round. Suddenly they're putting something in writing, it makes them feel uncomfortable and they say, oh, I'd rather not, and you know that they're not interested at that point. If they do put that information down, you've got a red hot lead to, to follow up with and start going through those second and third meetings, that due diligence process. And it also allows you to create FOMO, fear of missing out in your round, because hopefully, let's say you're raising a million pounds, let, let's get to a point, don't start closing your round till you've at least got 1.5 million in expressed interest from investors, 1.5 million in these expressions of interest, you're 150% oversubscribed. You can then ring back these investors you've been having conversations with in an order of preference. And you can ring up the first one saying, look, we're ready to close our round. We're oversubscribed. I've got 1.5 million committed. I only need a million. So I'm, I'm, I'm not looking to oversubscribe. So we're only going to close at a million. Are you in? We're looking to we're looking to get investors who, you know, who are com committed to, to get their final commitment by the end of the week because we want to instruct the lawyers to send out, send out heads of terms by the end of the month. You're one of my top pick investors. I loved the dynamic between us. I thought you'd be a really strong fit for the team. Are you on board? And it does two things. One, it creates FOMO because they're like, there's other investors who are interested. If I don't say yes now, then I'm going to miss out on this opportunity. But it also gives them reassurance because they're often isolated, especially angel investors, isolated making a decision with their capital. And if they know loads of other investors have seen the potential in your concept as well and you're oversubscribed, suddenly there's this excitement, this momentum, this reassurance that they're making the right decision. So it makes it much easier for them to say yes and, and commit to those heads of terms. So it completely changes the dynamic. And I've seen founders use this approach and close around in a week. They've basically lined up a week's worth of meetings all in one go with investors back-to-back, -back, some group sessions where they pitch in a group to a number of angel investors. They all ask their questions, expression of interest form on every seat, um, gather up these expressions of interest. And by the end of the week, they're in a position where they're oversubscribed and they're ringing everyone back. You're my top pick investor. Are you on board? They're telling everyone you're their top pick investor, getting everyone on board and, and closing their round by the end of that week. So it can be a complete game changer once you know how to close. With a simple A4 form, you can completely transform your campaign. It's quite incredible. I cannot wait to share this with my team as well, that advice <laughs> and everything else. It's just, it sounds, it, and that's the best advice is always obvious once you hear it. That's the nice part mm. about this. There's, there's a recipe here you can follow. It's not yeah. like an art uh, in a sense of there is a recipe, which mm. I always love because a lot of business advice is fluffy. 
which is mm. not very helpful. So I, I absolutely love that. I'm really excited to share this with people. It's not rocket science. It's just knowing the playbook. It's knowing the playbook. And once you have the playbook, you can just do it again and again and again, and you can raise as much funding as you want for whatever venture you want. Once you've figured it out, you can just do it again and again and again. I love it. Absolutely loved all the advice on this call. It was amazing. I have a couple more small questions, not about pitching anymore. Yeah. What is your favorite book? Uh, two. There's two two favorite books. They're both by the same author, and that's Daniel Priestley. He's one of my one of my advisors and, and mentors. And it's the book Key, Key Person of Influence and the book Oversubscribed, and both are massive influences on me in the way that I've scaled and grown uh, Robot Mascot. There's a it, it aligns nicely with what we talked about in terms of the expression of interest form and oversubscribed thinking and like how to get oversubscribed and have people queuing up to do business with you. And you can apply those same strategies that he talks about from a sort of sales and marketing perspective directly to investment. And key person of influence is what kind of inspired me to write a book and do all this social content and have this and, and create the brand that we've created and the personal brand I've created. Yeah, they were the two biggest books that had the most influence on me, I think. Key person of influence is what made me start creating content as well, believe it or not. Is it? So that's ah, amazing. Cool. So you that book. Yeah. It, it gave me the kick over the edge because I was toying with it for ages. And at the start of COVID, I had a meetup. So I used to do teach software workshops in person. And then I read that book, COVID hit, and I no longer could make that network the way I was. So I just, after that, I just, I can't stop. I have to double down. So how do I double down? And in fairness, it's gotten me nearly 10,000 subscribers on YouTube by just making some of that content online, which is really nice because it was no extra effort. It was just doing it in a new format. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, bringing, bringing Dan on as an advisor and and going through his program was, was the, the game changer for, for our business and completely completely transformed almost overnight it's well worth a read and it's well worth looking at the work dent do dan's business because yeah it's completely transformed me and and my business beautiful i'll have to probably annoy him soon see if i can annoy him for half an hour to get (laughs) some visit information because you've just reminded me i completely forgot why this crazy journey started until you mentioned that book i was like that's the one because i was trying to figure out like why did i even start this stuff yeah, it's it's an incredible book. That's amazing. Really, really um, good. Yeah. Love it. Then the last question I have, is there a piece of software or a tool that you use in your business that is a lifesaver that you just couldn't survive without? Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, maybe this is a fairly obvious one because I'm not overly into, you know, the the product side. But uh, yeah, for, for us or for me, it's just Zapier has been... Like our business would fall apart if Zapier disappeared. Everything's so integrated. Our whole business has been, we've been able to scale. We've been able to grow at the pace that we have and with with the team that we have, the size of the team that we have, because we've automated and systemized so much. And much of that is is hooking stuff up, different tools and platforms through Zaps in, in Zapier. So I think that's that's the thing that that pretty much hooks everything together in our business and, and allows us to operate. So I'd probably have to say that. Beautiful. I, I love Zapier. I'm only starting to use it recently for syncing my emails because I have like six of them and things like that. So yeah. it's, it's amazing. Where can people find you? Where on the web do you live? And where's the best place to, if people want to engage and use Robot Mascot as well? Yeah. So 
I share most content on LinkedIn, so you, so feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. Just search James Church, you should see me. On most other social channels as well, I post every day. There's a post goes out every day on on Twitter and Instagram and and Facebook as well. So we're we're on there. We've got a, I've got a Facebook group if you're a Facebook user called Investable Entrepreneur, where I share loads of content there too. YouTube videos go out every week on YouTube, so that's where you can find me and engage. In terms of wanting to know more about the way we support founders, it's, it's go to the Robot Mascot website robotmascot.co.uk that's where you'll find the link to order a free copy of the book if you want to order a free copy of the book and then the final thing i'd 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 say is if you are seeking investment um, or thinking about seeking investment and you want to kind of benchmark yourself and figure out kind of how ready you are to to start raising investment do you have everything you need in place to kind of have the the meaningful conversations with investors then then go to pitch ready co.uk and there's a, a piece of technology we created called that's a scorecard and it asks you some simple yes no questions and produces a, a 12 page uh, 12 page report completely tailored to you as to how ready you are and benchmarks your ability to currently raise investments that's pitchready.co.uk for that kind of bespoke tailored report so yeah they're the best places to go to get more support i think Brilliant. That's, again, just more really useful, practical things. <laughs> yeah, more free stuff. You've been a fountain of knowledge, James. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. No, for you're, this you're very today. welcome. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Brilliant. Well, hopefully we'll talk again soon anyway. Yes, absolutely. All the best. I really love that. I always get so energized by people that are just passionate about their craft. It doesn't really matter about the field. I know I said it on the call, but it did really feel like it was some personal mentorship especially with the stage of the journey I'm on. My three biggest takeaways from the show are taking baby steps towards your goals, researching your target investors using Crunchbase, and then being ready to close with an expression of interest form. I've added all the books, links, and everything else to James and his recommendations in the show notes. And if you're looking for even more content, you can sign up to my free newsletter on nile.af forward slash newsletter. That's N-I-A-L-L dot A-F. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a little favor to ask. If you could leave the podcast a kind review, it would really help the show out. It appeases the algorithm gods and helps me reach new people, so I really appreciate it. And until next time, my beautiful friends, keep learning and keep growing.